Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Tammy Freeman. This episode is part of Physics World's AI and Medical Physics Week, which is supported by Sun Nuclear, a manufacturer of patient safety solutions for radiation therapy and diagnostic imaging centres. Coming up, I'm going to find out how AI-based tools can be used to optimise and personalise radiation therapy for cancer patients. But first, Physics World's Hamish Johnston speaks to a high school student who has already won two major awards for his research on using AI for healthcare applications, including drug discovery and radiotherapy. Four years ago, when he was just 13, Rishabh Jain from Portland, Oregon, was named America's top young scientist in the 2018 Young Scientist Challenge. And that was for his work on improving radiotherapy for pancreatic cancer. Now Rishabh has triumphed again, winning $50,000 at the Regeneron International Science and Engineering Fair the world's largest high school science competition. I'm really pleased to be talking to Rishabh to find out more about the science behind these awards. Hi, welcome to the podcast. Hi, nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. So Rishabh, this latest prize was awarded for developing an artificial intelligence-based model for the rapid and cost-effective production of drugs. Can you tell us a bit about this project? Yeah, so kind of the COVID-19 pandemic has taught us that there's a need for the rapid production of vaccines and drugs. And in the pharmaceutical industry, there are a few different types of vaccines, including you may have heard DNA, mRNA, especially with COVID, um, and recombinant vaccines. So recombinant vaccines are not only fast to mass produce, but are also more cost effective and have you know, high human antibody response, which make it ideal uh, for vaccines. So recombinant drugs and vaccines are currently created by taking a gene um, and introducing it into a simple bacterium or cell like E. coli. And then the fascinating piece about this technology is that the cell will now start producing the protein that the gene codes for. So this same technology has been used to produce drugs for, you know, human insulin or vaccines for malaria. But one of the challenges today in this drug development is the ability to mass produce these pharmaceuticals, especially in the wake of a pandemic, as I mentioned. So there are multiple vaccines um, that I found from just reading online that they face a lot of concern uh, for reaching high production possibilities. So in my research, I wanted to leverage my knowledge of artificial intelligence to help improve the efficiency of this recombinant technology. And so how does artificial intelligence um, help with uh, drug discovery? Yeah, so artificial intelligence was really core to the solution. Um, So my research actually stems from both a biological and AI perspective. Uh, And the biological aspect of it is that you know, DNA makes RNA and RNA makes protein. And the fascinating thing is that when we design synthetic DNA, there are 64 codons, which are the three nucleotide pairs throughout a gene sequence, yet only 22 amino acids. 
Um, and there are multiple codons that may code for the same amino acid, yet research has actually shown that these codons aren't redundant. And by choosing certain ones over others, we can improve the efficiency of recombinant expression up to 1,000 times. So now how does AI come into this, you might be wondering. Well, what I did is I developed a tool that uses uh, an AI technology known as deep learning to learn the underlying patterns behind how the E. coli bacteria uses codons. Um, and deep learning has kind of demonstrated a lot of promise in various fields uh, for its high level of abstraction on large data sets. Um, and that's precisely what my model is kind of needed because it's trained on millions of codons. Um, so if you had to learn codon usage uh, over millions of them in thousands of sequences, it would be kind of impossible for a human to do, um, let alone understand that codon usage. So that's why AI was needed for this task to understand this underlying patterns uh, within the genomes of E. coli. And, and so you've won, you've won this $50,000 prize for um, developing this work. Um, are, are, you, are you moving on with this? Are you, are you doing more? Yeah, definitely. So I am continuing to develop this work in uh, actually a few main ways. Um, the first is exploring uh, a publication. So I've been mentored on this project by my older brother, uh, Aditya Jain, who is a medical student at Harvard Med School. Um, and Professor Densmore of Boston University to publish a paper on this research. Um, and the reason why I'm exploring this, and I believe it's an important step, is because it allows my research to go through the scientific rigor, that is the peer review process uh, as a part of publishing it. And it also helps to validate the, the research and my model and the results that I've received so that it can be further used in the industry. So I've currently licensed this deep learning model uh, for the tool to a biotech company who is trying to integrate it into their tools. Um, and I have a couple other steps that I'd like to explore to continue developing it. Um, currently, my tool optimizes synthetic genes, as I mentioned, for expression um, in E. coli, which is a very commonly used bacterium for recombinant expression. However, um, studies and, and other scientists have tried uh, expressing genes and other types of hosts, such as, you know, yeast cells, mammalian cells. So I'd like to try retraining my deep learning model on perhaps other types of organisms, genomes, so it can try optimizing those. Uh, and currently I have coded a Windows software tool that runs the codon optimization, um, as well as a Python shell script. And I want to further develop something um, to allow easy access for researchers to use my tool. So I'd like to explore uh, creating an API for this research. Um, and I'm also finally looking to further validate my research by testing out the actual protein production of, of the optimized genes that my tool outputs in the wet lab. Um, and in fact, I'm really looking for any partnership where someone can kind of run these wet lab experiments to test my tool, uh, and they can contact me about that. So did you find your, your participation in the science fair, uh, was it good training to, um, to, to move on and, and, and write a scientific paper? Were, were you using the same skills or, or did you have to develop new skills to, to write that scientific paper and, and also to, to interact with, uh, with the company? Yeah, I, I think there, there is an intermix of both 
new skills and uh, skills that I learned directly from research. So in terms of new skills, I think the, the biggest aspect there is just science communication, um, that learning how can I communicate my science to another person who you know has a, an expert understanding of this field, but doesn't know exactly what I've been doing and, and what my specific testing procedure was, what was my methodology. So being able to communicate that through a scientific paper, I think those are some new skills that have been introduced there. Uh, but as you mentioned, with interacting with a, a, a biotech company on this and licensing my tool to them, there was some overlap of existing skills that I learned in my research just by training the deep learning model and doing a lot of programming there. Um, so one of the things that I, I did as a part of working with them was creating a Python tool, um, as I mentioned, for the tool. So essentially that allows a researcher to fire up a, a Python shell on their machine and try optimizing some genes through that. Um, in order to, to really build that, I did have to go back to my knowledge of programming. Um, and, and that is a skill that I've been developing through this research project and prior research projects as well. So I would say that um, there, there is definitely an overlap of both new skills that I've had to learn in science communication, as well as just um, specific skills in, in, the, in the research aspect for programming and um, specifically the artificial intelligence work that I've done. And and so, Rishabh, what are you going to do with uh, with this fifty thousand dollars, this prize money? Are you going to um, are you going to put it towards uh, further developing this idea, or maybe towards your education, or maybe have a little bit of fun? Have you <laughs> decided what you're going to do? Yeah. So the prize will go directly to an institution. Um, it, it is a scholarship prize, so uh, right. I'll be using that towards um, my undergrad education. Um, but definitely, I, I do hope to um, kick back a little bit this summer break as well uh, and have a little fun, as you mentioned. But, um, but yeah, no, the, the prize money is, is definitely, um, it, it's, it's been really cool to have that and see my research be recognized in this way. Um, I'm also actually happy because of that award. Uh, my school, Westview High, um, and its science department along with my state science fair, uh, which I competed in the Northwest Science Expo, they'll both be receiving grants uh, as a part of this. So um, not only will I get to further my own education through the prize, but also um, the supporting school and, and fair that, that were part of the initial journey to the international fair um, also get supported. Oh, that's fantastic. Your, your teachers must be very pleased with you, I'm guessing. <laughs> Yeah, I know. My, my teachers were excited to hear about this. Let's talk a bit about your previous award-winning project. And, and we reported on that in Physics World. It involved the creation of an algorithm that uses AI to track the pancreas in real time during MRI-guided radiotherapy. Can you tell us a bit more about that research? Yeah, so that research is kind of what I like to call my breakout project. Uh, it was one of my first major projects targeting a medical problem using AI. Um, and as really evident by the coverage by, by Physics World in the past as well, um, it did receive a lot of attention. And that work was called the Pancreatic Cancer Deep Learning System. Um, it was a deep learning model that's trained on MRI, MRI scans of the abdominal area, and it's trained to segment and locate out the area of the pancreatic region. Um, so you can kind of imagine that in this abdominal scan, you have various organs um, like the liver and the kidneys. 
Um, but being able to segment out the exact location of the pancreas comes uh, in handy in a procedure known as image-guided radiotherapy, or IGRT. And that's essentially where we apply radiotherapy to kill off cancer cells, but um, using abdominal imaging at the same time to guide that. So my tool, uh, the Pancreatic Cancer Deep Learning System, could potentially be used to segment out the location of the pancreas to be able to target that region more effectively during the radiotherapy procedure. And what's the status on that project? Are, are, have people sort of taken it over from you and, and, and progressing it, or are you still working on it? So I did keep um, personally working on the project, but I think I was a little bit limited as a student to be able to implement my tool in the clinical setting. Uh, but I would say that a big part of the research was the development of the image segmentation algorithms. Um, so I, I have continued working on those algorithms um, and applying it to other problems as well. So uh, in its current state, the image segmentation algorithms that I developed for that research, I've applied those to um, a medical condition that many pancreatic cancer patients get. It's called sarcopenia. Um, and I've been working on building a deep learning model for the prediction of sarcopenia. Um, and what I've actually seen is that by using a similar approach and, and this, a similar model to what I developed for uh, the pancreatic cancer system, um, I've seen a similar high accuracy and strong performance um, with respect to that algorithm. But I, I do think um, about a year after the research that I did on the, I'll, I'll shorten out, PCDLS, that's the name for the acronym for the tool. So about a year after the PCDLS research, I noticed that a lot of papers began popping up about pancreas segmentation. I think it was definitely like an area of interest um, during that time. There's a lot of media attention about pancreatic cancer and awareness spreading about that as well. Um, and since then, uh, really every few months now, I've noticed a new paper from some university or lab that's been um, progressively building up on performance from past models that they've worked on. Um, and I think the biggest difference between these new studies um, and mine was the modality. I did train my model on two-dimensional abdominal images, um, and these new studies are trying to segment the pancreas as a three-dimensional structure, which is a trickier task uh, requiring even more data and even larger compute research. So as far as I'm aware, um, these studies have, haven't yet been successful in implementing this tool in a clinical study, but um, as the accuracy continues improving, uh, just over these last couple of years, it's been huge improvements. Um, the, I think that this technology will be implemented eventually. Wow. Wow. Well, it's fantastic that you're, that you're keeping up with this research while you're, you're, you're still w w working away at school. That's, that, that, that's really good to hear. Um, but both of, the, of, of your award-winning projects um, involved applying AI techniques to, to a medical problem. Do you think you'll carry on uh, looking for new ways to exploit AI in uh, healthcare applications? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I've always said this. I, I believe that artificial intelligence is kind of the driving force be behind what many people are calling the fourth industrial revolution. Um, it's, it's really shaping every single field, and I think it's surely going to continue to shape medicine. Uh, so as for new ways to 
exploit AI to healthcare problems. I definitely have a few ideas um, on improving patient quality of care and quality of life. Um, so as I mentioned, similar to how my research on the pancreatic cancer deep learning system um, was done, I have been applying that uh, image segmentation algorithm to the medical, medical condition of sarcopenia. So being able to predict sarcopenia at an early stage um, from its scan is really helpful in aiding physicians to treat uh, cancer patients with that condition better. Um, in addition to that, uh, on my current research project, uh, for which I won the Regeneron ISEF, um, I, I am continuing to work on that, as I mentioned earlier, and applying uh, other AI techniques. Something specific that I'm looking into is the ability of AI to optimize other regions of a gene. So currently, uh, the tool is trained so that it optimizes the coding region of the gene or the coding sequences. Um, however, there are other parts of the gene that could potentially be optimized so that uh, a host cell produces more of that protein. So I'm looking into uh, optimizing the expression of uh, the gene by isolating out the promoter piece of the sequence um, and trying to optimize that as well. Um, so yeah, I have a few ideas that I mentioned earlier today about um, improving and continuing working on those research projects. So I, I definitely think that AI is going to be a big factor of how we treat patients in the future. Uh, and I'd like to continue my research with these ideas as well. Oh, excellent. And, and what, about, what about you per personally? You've got this, this $50,000 scholarship sitting somewhere. H how do you plan to use that? What, what, what do you plan to study at, at university? Yeah, um, so I am planning on studying human biology and or neurobiology for an undergraduate degree um, while continuing my research throughout college and university. Um, I do hope to uh, attend a university that has a, a big research um, focus. Uh, actually, in this in the near future, I will be um, continuing my science research at MIT this summer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I was selected for MIT's Research Science Institute, and I'm really excited to work with my mentors at MIT for that. Oh, congratulations. Um, so yeah, thank you. Um, so I think that this this prize of fifty thousand will be um, really helpful in my education and uh, undergrad. These this next after I graduate from high school, uh, those four years. So being able to continue my research on the side along with uh, my undergraduate degree, um, as I mentioned in, in human biology or neurobiology, I think that would be um, really interesting to me. Well, that's great. Thanks so much for speaking to Physics World, um, Rishabh, and best of luck uh, with, with all your activities in the future. Yeah, thanks again for having me. It was really fun. Oncospace, a startup from Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, is using artificial intelligence and machine learning to improve our understanding of the impact of radiation on patients. In particular, Oncospace is creating AI-based tools to optimize and personalize radiation therapy for cancer patients. I'm speaking today with Todd McNutt, co-founder and chief scientist at Oncospace, to find out more. Hi, Todd. Hi, how are you? Many of the more commonly known applications of AI in cancer management involve analysing medical images for disease diagnosis and screening, for example. 
but you're applying machine learning to cancer treatment, so to optimize radiation therapy. What led Oncospace to focus on this particular field? Well, um, the planning of radiation therapy treatments is actually quite complex these days. And you know, over the last couple of decades, we've created a, an ability to dynamically deliver radiation to patients where we try to really highly conform the dose to target volumes while sparing normal tissues. And this process is can take you know a week or so for the whole workflow to happen with dosimetrists. And it involves specifying um, objective functions for normal tissues and target volumes <clears throat> that aren't really well known what they should be. And so the AI can really, by looking at all these prior treatment plans, we can predict how good of a treatment plan we should be able to give for a new patient based strictly on their anatomy and target volumes. And that process can automate as well as ensure high quality treatments uh, in the planning process for radiation therapy. Okay, so I mean, Oncospace is working to bring these AI tools from the research environment into the clinic. So what's needed to take this final step and to create a commercial product? So that's right. So as, um, as you can imagine, we're very protocol driven. So we, the main thing we really need to do is take the AI prediction algorithms and tools and provide them in a very user-friendly way to clinicians so that they can use it without having to fiddle with it, without having to fully understand all the things on the inside of it. But so it needs to be presented to them in a way that they think. And the way we do that is through protocols. So by having a, you know, a full set of protocols, for example, for treating prostate cancer that covers the many different ways that we uh, treat patients with prostate cancer and having those prediction models just work under that protocol guidance kind of brings those tools to a reasonable clinical workflow where uh, that just makes it much more user-friendly to use. And so that's what we've been doing with Oncospace Inc. is taking the work that we've done you know, at Johns Hopkins and bringing it into that framework. And we're doing that through cloud computing, through the protocol development, and through actually advancing some of those prediction models. Okay, so I mean, looking at one example of this commercialization, um, last year Oncospace released um, its predictive planning solution. So can you tell me a bit more about this product and, and how it's used in radiation therapy? <clears throat> right. So. So basically, once a physician is done identifying what they want to treat and the normal anatomy, they can submit that into the system. What, what Aquaspace does is it looks at that patient's anatomy. It has models that can, because there's a certain relationship between the normal anatomy and that target volume that's unique to that patient because we're all different. What Aquaspace does then is, is after they select the protocol, Aquaspace uses those prediction models to predict the sort of best achievable dose for the various structures uh, in, in, the, in the body. And once that prediction is done, the, that prediction can be presented to the physician. So before they even enter the planning process, they can visualize what they expect to achieve for that patient. And they can make decisions on how to proceed. In some cases, that patient might be very hard to plan and they, can, they may want to make some changes or make some kind of compromises if they need to, to make sure they achieve one dose goal over another dose goal. And by presenting it to them before planning, it sets expectations. 
And then those predictions also then can get downloaded to the uh, typical treatment planning systems that are used, and they become the dose goals to drive the treatment plan optimization. So those same protocols that were selected are also used to control the treatment planning system. So in the treatment planning system, the user would just ask to run the plan, basically, and then it will automatically create all the treatment beams necessary. It will set up all the objectives that drive the optimization, and it will run the optimization for the treatment plans towards those predicted best achievable goals. Those best achievable goals, because they're unique to that patient and they are mostly achievable, we want them to be a little bit of a stretch because we always want the plan to get better. <clears throat> but by, by them being mostly achievable, it makes it much easier on the optimization of the treatment plan and it pretty much automates the process. Okay, and I guess, I mean, this is getting a real personalized treatment for, for each patient by using this. That's right, because today's in today's practice, treatment plans are done based on population goals for a particular disease site, and they don't consider the patient's anatomy, the individual patient's anatomy, and how difficult sparing of like a bladder or rectum is. And with our tool, we can personalize those predictions and really have it personalized to that specific patient's anatomy. That gives it the ability to be automated. The population goals, you can't really automate because you'll try them and some of most of them won't be met or a lot of them won't be met. And you have to go back and forth trying to figure out what compromises you needed to make. And it becomes an iterative process between the treatment planner and the physician. And so that process, you know, ultimately doesn't come up with the best plan, but by doing the prediction up front for that patient specific anatomy, it kind of tells you and directs you to go right to that, that best quality plan. Okay, and when, when you're developing clinical machine learning tools, do you need to use large banks of existing patient data to train the AI algorithms? And how easy is it to access this sort of data? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, data data is becoming a little bit more free, as some people would put. There's a there's several people out there. Free the data, right? Um, but yeah, absolutely. You, you have to have good quality data to build on... Um, you know, to build these models. And here at, at Johns Hopkins, we've spent a better, more than a decade um, on our internal project where we um, built up our databases. And so we have over 8,000 patients between head and neck and prostate and thoracic cases that we've sort of built up into a de-identified database for this purpose. And Aquaspace, when, when it was formed, licensed access to that data. Um, so that that's sort of... Um, kind of provided the basis for our model building. Um, since then, we're also working with a few other institutions and um, working on getting accruing more data to build even more models or improve the existing models. In, a, in addition, by the use, the way we're designing the system, it also curates data as you use it. So it adheres to naming conventions that are in standardized with uh, task group 263 and so every time you use the system, we map the contour names to standard naming, and we're able to get those doses. So the system is actually built to accrue data over time so with the intent of it, that, that data accrued also being added and having models built upon that to improve them over time. Because that's the other thing that's important about data is, you know, practice changes with time. If I built 
models that were on data from 20 years ago, I'd be treating you like I treated patients 20 years ago, right? So you do have to, you know, as we build these types of systems going forward, we want to make sure that they can continually learn and update and change with the, with the times. Okay, and um, are there some other applications that OncoSpace is working on at the moment? Um, right, so we view AI, so you know that's our main interest is really improving the plan quality and, and providing that automation because there's, there's a lot of value in that to the clinicians and to the patients. The other areas where we're interested in is a, the peer review process. So in, in radiation oncology, it is a well, you know, well-established process to perform peer review, which means that every patient that we treat has a second opinion on it in terms of reviewing the plan, you know, giving some oversight as a safety perspective. So AI um, offers an opportunity here to highlight anomalies that it can detect in a particular patient's electronic record and their treatment plan to sort of assist in that peer review process and actually even highlight things that might be useful for a peer to look at. And so we view it as sort of um, the AI system looking over your shoulder a little bit and saying, hey, that's not normal. Maybe, maybe you should take a look here, double check yourself just from a safety perspective. And, you know, there's several, you know, many instances, in fact, safety related incidents that happen in radiation therapy are, could be detected like that. Um, so prescriptions that have been sort of inadvertently given to the wrong diagnosis or contours that are not fully completed or contours that may have gone too far, like sometimes the rectum gets contoured too far into the sigmoid, things like that, that can be detected by AI and assist in that process. So this is the um, anomaly detection algorithm, and, and that was um, being developed at John Hopkins. And you are work, so you work with John Hopkins researchers to um, to develop these tools. Yeah, well, I, I'm employed at Johns Hopkins. I'm a faculty here, so we I um, so we have a few projects that are around um, the anomaly detection efforts. Uh, one is the prescription anomalies, and that's an effort that we started many years ago, and. Uh, recently, uh, Changa Lee sort of did a nice project on that uh, under one of our peer review SBIRs funded through Oncospace. And um, yeah, so that looks at just simply highlighting prescriptions that are abnormal for that peer review process. Another area is in the regions of interest that I alluded to. So we've also done uh, a fair amount of work um, looking at anatomical contours and seeing are they are they, do they have anomalies in them? Are they discontiguous or are they just, is their shape not really aligned with the, the shapes of all the prior patients? Because you can imagine if, if you get a femur head and it just doesn't look like a femur head and you compare it to the prior database, you can, you can highlight those kinds of things. And, and the peer review process in radiation oncology, contour review is a huge part of that as well as the treatment plan review. So between the prescription anomalies, the region of interest anomaly detection, as well as the predictive planning, where you can see the quality of the plan on the backdrop of those predictions, it gives us that real ability to highlight where there are things to look at in the peer review cycle. And, and with this peer review, I mean, this is something that's covered in the application of AI to all areas of medical physics. Do you envisage that the AI would take over completely or would it be used as a tool along with the medical physicists 
um, looking and doing the peer review themselves? Yeah, and that's a very good question, actually. Um, I I think there are some areas where AI can probably do a better job. Um, So, I mean, what what I think at first what AI can do is bring to light something that may not have been seen to begin with, right? Because um, people get in a habit in peer review, they tend to look at, at the things that they look at, but there might be something over here on the right that they it's never been a problem and they, you know, it's, it's just overlooked. And so AI can certainly highlight those things. Um, I don't know that you can, I don't think AI can take responsibility so we have to be very careful there. So I think initially, as we introduce these types of tools, they should be viewed as assistants and not responsible parties to do it fully automatically. Um, but, you know, in the end, I think there is a lot that eventually could be AI could be relied on. But, you know, we'll let time figure that one out. And, and as people use it and use the assistance aspects of it. Maybe they'll find that, hey, why did, I don't need that assistance anymore. Why don't you just do it? And if it's wrong, tell me. But other than that, I, I don't necessarily need to see it. Okay, great. And um, finally, you know, can you comment sort of on a more general area, how you see the application of AI in medical physics sort of panning out in the next few years? Right. So, um, so what we've been talking about now mostly has been sort of the, you know, assisting the workflow, automating things and, and improving quality. You know, the, the other areas of our research involve um, outcome predictions, whether it be uh, toxicity predictions or disease response predictions. And I think initially you were going to see sort of the automation and quality control and those tools kind of entering the clinical paradigm. But then we can start getting much more advanced. So right now, when we think about which patients are going to lose salivary function, we have very simple metrics, like the the mean dose to the parotid gland being below like 26 gray is a very simplistic metric to represent how this complex three-dimensional radiation dose distribution is distributed throughout the parotid gland. So of course, it's not the best predictor, but it's it's what we have. But as we get more and more knowledge built up and how and of how this dose affects people and how their toxicities have come out, we'll start to be able to see improved predictions of those outcomes. And we'll start to be able to drive treatment planning to improve those outcomes based on those more complex evaluations, if you will, of that dose distribution. And a lot of our work um, in the past has focused on that. Um, there are some challenges to that. So I don't think the world is ready for it. Um, what one of those challenges is, for example, um, the knowledge that we currently have, we put into every planning treatment plan we make, right? So um, a, a simple, maybe gruesome example is we always keep the spinal cord dose below 45 gray to prevent paralysis. Well, that means if I have a, pa- a, a database of all these patients that are, have treatments near the spine and none of them have more than 45 gray and none of them have been paralyzed, the AI will never know that a high dose will paralyze a patient, right? So so it has boundaries, right? And those boundaries are defined by how we practice and what our existing knowledge is. So when we start building models for toxicity prediction and things like that, we need to make sure that our AI algorithms either recognize those boundaries or incorporate that existing knowledge that was used to generate the data in the first place. 
Um, and so I think there's some some exciting research activities in that space. Um, and um, but I, I think we will see more, you know, safe toxicity predictions and things like that coming into play as we progress. And that will further, you know, that'll, that's what will also impact the patient. You know, right now we think we're going to impact the patient a lot by treatment plan quality. But when we can really start predicting their toxicities and design plans to even minimize that, I think we can take even another step in that direction. That's great. Thanks very much for speaking with us today. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Todd McNutt, Rishab Jain and Hamish Johnston for joining me today. Thank you to Sun Nuclear for their support of AI and Medical Physics Week and a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We will be back again next week, but in the meantime, do take a look at the rest of the AI and Medical Physics Week content, which includes free-to-attend scientific presentations from leading experts, as well as bumper coverage of the latest research in the field. Physics World.